0: And welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to this, the latest episode of Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Yes, we're still in lockdown, what feels like an absolute eternity, but we're still here to provide you with the... Substandard wrestling banter that we always do on top of our fantastic discussions on the sport. Today we're gonna to be talking about something a wee bit different, something a bit more to the east of the world. No, we're not talking about coronavirus before people ask. We are talking about something from U Japan Pro Wrestling and we are talking about the famous series of matches that took place between two thousand and seventeen and two thousand eighteen between Kusashike Arkada, whose name I never pronounce, and Kenny I
2: Omega. Is it uh, Okada?
3: Yeah, I can't remember his name Okada and Omega. We'll be talking about those four matches that they had over the period of 18 months. But
1: before we get kicked off in the discussion of that, we're going to have a bit of housekeeping. So please go onto our social media channels if you've never listened to it before. Follow us Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at supplementary where you can follow the discussion. And you can also subscribe to us on any good podcasting site. Uh, just search for Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet, and you can also find our bonus feed Suplex Retweet Extra there as well, where we do extra content such as reviews of Raw SmackDown and hopefully, whenever they return soon, uh, of U Japan Pro Wrestling shows. So, subscribe to that for all the great content. But now, let's introduce today's panel for the show. We're pleased to be joined by actually the two hosts of our U Japan Pro Wrestling review show, East Meets West. First of all, is a man who I describe as the most patient man in the world as he's locked down in the house with his brother Ross. Yes, give him credit, it's Scott McLeod.
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. It is very difficult to have a, a show wrapping up the goings on in New Japan when the last month and half there have been no goings on in New Japan thanks to the bloody virus.
1: Yeah, that's why we're, we seem to be doing a lot of WWE reviews, what do you think about that? You know it's entirely up to yourself, but... Hey-ho, uh, hopefully that show comes back soon, and his partner in crime on that show is a man who's looking more and more like Tom Hanks from Cast Away with every passing lockdown day. It's Grant McRobbie.
4: Good evening there, Stevie Boy. Thank you for that compliment. I like Tom Hanks.
1: Uh, I, I've i often been described as something from that film as well, but
3: we'll that's the <laughs> That film has plagued my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus.
1: And they say that being stuck in the house can make you do some crazy things. And our final panelist recently told me that she uh, destroys various properties that she builds up in The Sims and various other things on that game. She just got absolutely mental on it. Is Sarah Green?
5: I mean, I'm finding it more happy building the houses than actually playing with The Sims themselves. But yeah, I haven't killed anybody today. <laughs>
1: i ended they peed just up just randomly
5: in the middle
3: of the house. Uh, Stevie, we don't need to know what you get up to the, during the day, thank you very much.
5: I was going to uh, say, I was feeling a bit mad at you today, Stevie, so I made you and just sort of locked you in a wee basement.
3: Wow. Okay, just a fritzle. <laughs> <laughs> Not the we're to get that
1: type of comparison in this show. <laughs> uh, and we've got the man who has to try through the madness and make sure that it comes out absolutely smoothly. The thing is not, that's not—that's not the thing that's driving the most mental during this period, though. It is trying to find flour for its various baking shenanigans. That's quite
3: Yes, although that makes it sound like I make hash brownies or something like that, which I don't. But anyway, uh, yeah. Well, I've found flour. It's now just yeast. I'm trying to find so. If anybody finds dry, active yeast, please slide into my DMs at MrQuackaraji, hook me up, and we'll be friends for life.
1: I think is now the new toilet paper.
3: In the UK. No, I managed to get a good amount, it's just yeast now, so I don't want flour, I just need yeast.
1: There we go, so if you have yeast and you want rid of it, please DM <laughs> Quacko, and you can exchange it via some form of social distancing yeast. methods. Who knows? Hey,
3: no, 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 no! Just give it to me. I'm <laughs> not giving up anything. you must You're officially fired, Stevie. Yeah, oh, hey, you can put know. it at the end of your drive, and then you come out to get it.
1: Yeah, who knows?
3: But oh, of course, a, a free delivery up to Lindsey will be greatly appreciated. Drive right, by.
1: So enough about the yeast, and let's talk about. <laughs> Let's talk about the re- let's talk about wrestling and we're going to be talking about the the four matches that took place in between 2017 2018 between Okada and yeah. Omega. The first yep. of which, took enough place... of
3: the east. Let's talk about the east. Sorry, after <laughs> <throw> for that. In. <laughs>
1: uh, the first of these matches took place at the Wrestle Kingdom event at the beginning of 2017 uh, for the IWGP World Heavyweight Title. Uh, Grant, I'll start with you on this one, as there. The resident New Japan expert, even though you don't host the show, but you know more about it than Scott does. No offence, Scott, but Grant does know a lot. He's a sponge on it. Uh, Kenny claimed the opportunity for this match as the first ever uh, non-Japanese winner of the G1.
4: Yeah, the first the first foreign G1 winner in its history. He was looking at the time to go and win the belt and he wanted to defend it worldwide in a bit of a anti-WWE idea. That was his kind of big spell with Bullet Club at the time.
1: Yeah, very much sure. Um, Scott, I think um, there's a lot of things people say about Kenny Omega in terms of A lot of people agree that he's in-rings, uh, work has always been pretty crisp, but probably the end of 2016, up until around right about the start of this period, this is probably his peak period in terms of his character work, it's fair to say.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. I think there was a, a big contingent of fans, especially newer fans who came over, like a Western audience, that discovered New Japan, I think were very much behind Kent at this point because since like he kind of ousted AJ from the club and he and the Bucks really kicked off this elite thing that has become so big and he got the YouTube show. He basically became the guy in New Japan. You know he won the IC title for a while. He not only was the first non only G1 but he also won it in his first ever like G1 first so year competed in the tournament, which is very a rare thing to do to go in your first ever G1 and win the whole thing. And it felt like was basically going to be the face of the international expansion of New Japan of not just like They already had the, the fans in their home country but they were wanting to go worldwide and it felt like Omega was going to be like the face of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah and uh, Sarah on the flip side of things we have Okada who was obviously well established even at this point in time as the guy that, this, that New Japan Pro Wrestling wanted to push as their homegrown top talent. He obviously he's got, he had the IWGP title going into this match, and he pretty much dominated the promotion for a number of years beforehand.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, it, it's definitely easy to say that Okada was the one that they wanted to push as their, as like sort of their guy. It's like this is the guy representing the entire brand itself, um, and it's the fact that he was like he was actually already well established. I mean, he was already going in defending champion but he'd already been champion for like a good wee while before this had even started as well so it, it was it was a match that sort of seems it's going to be like the starlet one and definitely something to attract both like both kinds of wrestling fans i mean you've, you've got the homegrown talent to attract the japanese folk back to it and then you've got the international who people know as that guy that did get released from wwe um, but he is, and he was also like sort of that guy, he was the little up and coming fresh guy that has now changed his entire persona. And I can definitely agree that it's probably his best character work going into this.
1: Mm-hmm. No, definitely, like to, pardon my pun, but it was some elite character work from Mr. Omega at this particular time. You know?
3: Oh, Steven, Steven, Steven.
1: No, it was, it, it was great. See, <laughs> I will go back on to you in this one. Uh, the one thing that always stood out to me about this match, uh, even just kind of looking back on it from time to time over the last three years, was um, the entrances both men came out to in this particular one. It had such a big match feel, I think it's probably one of the most memorable Kenny Omega entrances with the kind of half kinda Terminator style mask, whatever it kind of was.
5: I uh, know, the whole Terminator thing was very, very memorable. I mean, I've got it written down in my notes, as like that Terminator entrance, because um, I watched all these matches for the first time um, this weekend because I'd actually never once witnessed these matches, which I'm quite surprised at. Um, And that was the things that, like, proper stood out. And you've got Okada as well. Like, you've never seemed to have an underwhelming Okada entrance, in my opinion, as well. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's the the money money falling from the sky type aspect. It's making
5: it it rain. It's making it rain.
1: Uh, (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Scott, you mentioned the couple of minutes ago, as well, that Kenny Omega was a big part in bringing a lot of the uh, Western audiences to U Japan. But I think it was the big thing for a lot of Western wrestling fans was more this particular match and just how well put together it was and how even as how well received it was. I think a lot of people went to watch it just based on the reactions we saw.
2: Yeah, because uh, for me, this match kind of benefited from a rewatch, and it's nothing to do with, like the quality of the match. I just the first time I watched it, I'd, already, I'd seen the rest of the show, but I hadn't had time to watch the main event, so I was going back and watching it. But by the time I went to watch it, I'd heard about the whole, the Meltzer and the rating that it got. And I felt like I was kind of under pressure, because everybody was going on about it to, like, if I didn't like it and think it was the greatest thing ever, then, like, people would think to see that as an issue. But then, I think going back on it, I really enjoyed the match, and it is good to watch these matches, regardless of what uh, the rating is. and they do a really good job in this match especially the first 10-15 minutes i think because wrestle kingdom cards as me and granite explained even though even when it was just a one-night show when we did the two-night one we talked about the pacing of like your main event matches is like the fans have already seen a big long like a stacked card and the main events tend to go a good while and this goes around more than 40 minutes so i think to give the fans time to recover from all the matches they've seen and also get them invested in this match. If it's May event, it's going to go the distance. They, they, they set the right pace in the first 10 or so minutes.
1: Yeah, Scott mentioned obviously the, the timing of the match. It was a 45-minute match. It was, I don't connect correct me if I'm wrong, I think it still is the longest uh, uh, Japan 4th Tokyo Dome match of all time. Still, so it was nine minutes longer than the match the previous year, and it was actually longer than the two matches that came before it combined. Do you think maybe... Was it, is it risky to go so much longer than the match before it, and if it is risky, do you think they picked the right guys to take that risk at this particular time? Obviously, we, think, we know they did.
4: They, they definitely picked the right guys for it. I mean, I'll be honest, this was actually the first New Japan match that I ever watched. It was, I saw the reactions, I'd been maybe four years removed from independent wrestling and anything non-WWE, and everyone said, mate, it's 45 minutes. I was like, oh, that's a long match, and... I never lost interest in a single minute. It's a constant story throughout that they told, and I just couldn't see two other people pulling out something like that after the matches that come before it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, one of the things that actually really took notice to me for it—the uh,
1: timing that both men have in this match with pretty much the majority of their, their move set was pretty much on the money.
4: Oh yeah, the, the actual the connection they have, the chemistry—it's one of those rare certain people just have that chemistry like Nakamura and Styles had that chemistry where everything is just so crisp it just looks, you can't even, you sometimes lose the belief that it's pre-scripted to an extent, you're like wow oh, they just done this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah definitely, and Sarah you, we mentioned in the loop uh, over the last week while we are prepping this show, some of the spots we kind of see in this match kind of is typical of that type of hard hitting nasty type spots that make you just kind of grimace. When you kind of watch it the particular one that you mentioned the the dragon (laughs) suplex from kenny omega off the top rope to okada i don't think he's ever hit that move since again from the top ropes something wrong but i've never actually seen him do it since
5: um i don't i think he's tried to um, because there's been a few times i'm just like not that bloody snapdragon again um because that was that was the one thing that was in my notes and it was just watching it like I'm going to reiterate what Grant said you can't actually tell that this is all predetermined it's all scripted and all this sort of stuff you're just like like the storytelling just it draws you in and it makes it believable I mean that snapdragon from the top turnbuckle I screamed (laughs) and sort of yelled and I was like going oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah and like fun fact that that Dan told me is that Okada's actually said that that is the, his least favourite move that he's ever taken in his entire career. And I can't, I can't, I can't you know, do fault he, him for saying that.
1: He he says that, but yet, see some of the Germans that man was hitting, <laughs> the snap Germans? <laughs> My God, the, I know he, he was hitting Omega's neck and head off the canvas. Yeah. The, sitting on the couch like,
5: what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes you wonder um, if both of them are just as crazy as each other.
1: <laughs> yeah definitely um, Scott uh, we've as Scots of
3: Scots obviously not named Scott obviously from Scotland for people listening
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, are used to going to a lot of ICW shows where table spots don't often end well <laughs> I always find if you Japan the table spots don't look very safe and the oh. one that Kenny Omega takes in this match it's one of the nastiest table spots I've ever seen in my puff.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's always a cause for concern when these tables come out because they're really thin, they've got like kind of metal legs and even when you hit them there's no guarantee that they'll properly break and this one doesn't even break. I think a bit of the middle falls out but this table kind of just topples over which makes it even more nasty and the thing that was really interesting to me was I think the idea of taking a table spot is very much a non-New Japan kind of thing to do I think it was a sign of okay, the Western influence that the likes of Omega and, that, and all the other gaijin wrestlers were bringing in but what I thought was interesting was it was Okada that brought the table out which I thought <laughs> was interesting you expect Omega being the gaijin wrestler to bring the table it was Okada that did it. Mm-hmm. Okada was doing a lot of stuff in this match that maybe a lot of people didn't really see
1: from him I mean he was quite he was pulling out a lot of athletic moves as well uh, I'd never really seen too much from him he became a lot of his staple
4: stuff, the kind of the crossbody, the, the crowd type idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was doing a lot of stuff I'd never actually seen him do before. Yeah, it's like Omega brings that out of Okada. Um, Okada's got he's got a very sometimes rigid move set, and his big matches, the crossbody over the barrier, a draping DDT usually gets involved, the tombstone, the jumping tombstone, into the rainmaker, that sort of thing. But Omega really brought Okada's. A game and probably some of the most beautiful drop kicks I've ever witnessed in my life, like getting Omega in the top rope and banging him proper wet. Mm-hmm. I he did.
2: He did what, <laughs> <laughs> I still think Martin and get the best drop kick ever.
1: But...
5: Don't start that again. Don't start do it me, again.
1: To that's probably the only thing Mark Drindrake had going for him in his career. Sadly enough, for him, you know, if anybody's watched the ruthless aggression documentary of the WWE Network, you know how much bad luck that man had in terms of being left up for Evolution. uh, Sarah, uh the counters. There was a lot of counters. Very much, uh, and some of them were very innovative. One of my mm-hmm. favourite ones was the. It's the kind of thing we kind of see over the course of the series. We'll talk about a lot of them. The ways that Okada was reversing the one wing angel.
5: Yeah, no. This is what I was saying to, to Daniel to try and like under sort of, understand everything. Was as soon as he knows that he's going into that electric chair position, it's get out because I'm not I'm not going to be able to kick out essentially because in Japan no one's ever kicked out of the One Winged Angel and like that's the whole you know rule of finishers. It's like if it's hit properly, it's a finisher. Um, and I think okay, but it, it it shows the start of the storytelling because it also it shows that Okada's not taking his opponent lightly as like the Kenny Omega pre-bullet club that everyone used to sort of just take lightly and underestimate um, it shows that he actually did his homework as like as soon as he goes into that electric chair position and his head gets hooked he has to try and figure a way to get out of it because if he doesn't then he, if he's going down for the one, two, three, and that's it
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah definitely um Another one uh, Grant, that I really liked, uh, the V trigger reversed into the snap German suplex. That was really innovative. It's something I've never actually seen in any form of wrestling.
4: No, never seen anything like it. The actual, just how smoothly it goes. And I mean, that was like the V trigger is bloody horrific looking to take at times with the way Omega hits it. Mm-hmm. But as you were saying earlier, the angles for the Germans, the reversal into the German, it's just like what an angle. I'm pretty sure everyone subscribes to the Kota Bushi school of selling where, should I land on my back? No, no, land on your head and neck, you'll be fine.
1: (laughs) Somebody needs to tell that man, like, Kota, you are very good, stop dropping on your neck, we want (laughs) to see you wrestle for a good number of years to come. Um, And obviously Scott, you mentioned it as well earlier on, this was the match that broke the Meltzer rating system,
3: (laughs)
2: this was
1: the one that got the six stars. Now. I'll say this because I'm pedantic in that way as a man with a stats degree. I hate when you have a five-star rating when you break it and go <laughs> and go six stars. What did you? What's your thoughts on that?
2: I think something gets lost in this is kind of the idea of it, a star rating. That if you give a star rating to someone, that's just based on your particular opinion, and this was his opinion. And like Meltzer's been cur- been favoring Japanese wrestling since, very highly since the 90s, so I don't think it should be a price that he rated a Japanese match. So, I don't know it, it did lead to kind of a run and juggle, but if this was in the dome this would have got this amount of stars and stuff like that. But I think what gets lost in it is that it's just kind of an opinion. And I think that really divided a lot of people. I think it's one of the, the times where people properly discuss the idea of rating matches because the idea of well this was a five star but you get a six star so in what way is this match better than than that match you know and i think people forget again it is just an opinion
1: mm-hmm. yeah Grant i think to a lot of guys i think the thing it was a lot more you know reassuring in praise is it didn't just get praise from Meltzer it got praise from Daniel Bryan it got praise from Mick Foley it got praise from Stone Cold Steve Austin so when you hear those type of names say go watch this match you think this must be as good as this uh journalist is saying with Meltzer
4: Oh yeah, the, the reaction everywhere was unreal. I mean, I had, like, as I say, it was the first match I watched of New Japan and it was all based on these reactions coming from all these people like, right, this must be something special because they are really raving about it. It's, And I I'll say it's like Meltzer's thing. It is an opinion. He's got his scale, which I won't always remember 05, but he also has the minus scale as well because he has had minus matches. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a match that really set people talking everywhere you couldn't look anywhere on Facebook Twitter without it being discussed in some shape or form mm-hmm.
1: that's probably what you want when you're trying to maybe push your product to a worldwide level uh, saying so I'm going to ask you this question first before I ask the rest of the guys in this one we've got four matches we're going to talk about in this show where would this rank between the four matches for you One, two, three, or 4
5: Um, I'd probably say it would rank third for me
1: mm-hmm. interesting yeah. Any
5: particular reason? Um, I think it's just like there. There's other factors, mm-hmm. like in like the, the matches, especially later on to what wo- like later on in the series that it's it just progresses and it just it gives you those little something bit like extra. Mm-hmm. I would probably say like it is it's quite a bit of a toss up. Like I would say three. It might it's it sometimes jumps to four depending on like how I'm feeling basically
1: interesting <laughs> uh, Scott what about
2: you? I'd maybe say this would probably it was going between three and four but I think this might be fourth for me not there's really nothing to comment on the quality of the match itself because uh, I think it really helps set like the, the groundwork for the matches that were to come but when you examine everything and the other matches compared to this one I think uh, there are matches that are still to come that are much better so for that reason uh, I, I put it fourth Okay, what
4: about you. It's solid number three for me. Um, it's it's definitely got. I mean, comes to the entrances mm-hmm. at the beginning, it's got the most cinematic, big match feel. Mm-hmm. To me, it's the introduction of, of things, so it's it's still the start of a story. That's and that's where I feel I keep it at number three.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'd number free. three, I go three as well. I'd say it's, it's it's a very very good match watching it again. See if you watch that alone, you think this is mind blowing. But see when you watch them all kind of back to back. Mm-hmm you kind of start feeling right no it's not maybe as good as that one you know but if you watch it on its own it's still a fantastic match and probably as well deserving mm-hmm. of the praise that it got but they quickly then moved the series on and then within the space of six months we got match number two now before we actually go to the match against Scotland I'll ask you about this one the big thing probably that took yes. place in the spell between the two matches was Kenny Omega took a hiatus from New Japan after this point which is where we kind of saw our first kind of rumours going about of is Kenny Omega going to go to WWE? And apparently, there was some level of discussions in there. Looking back on it now, did you ever think that Omega was going to leave New Japan at this stage in his career?
2: Probably not. I think given the buzz that was around and that probably helped, and maybe that put more eyes on WWE on him. But I think when you actually like watch Omega and you listen to how he like, feels about wrestling. I think you can tell he's somebody who would probably conflict a lot with people behind the scenes in WWE because he likes to do things I think a certain way and I think getting a work in New Japan and now where he is in AEW he's given the freedom to do what he likes, how he sees pro wrestling so I don't think, looking back, there was ever a doubt that he was not going to go to WWE Yeah, um, he
1: has been about two years in Japan between this match and then eventually leaving to start up AEW. Do you think during that two-year spell, his star level just rose more? And maybe if he went to WWE, he might have not got to the same star level that he has today.
5: See, it's it's always a really hard one to sort of judge because you never know what's going to happen until it actually happens. Mm-hmm. So it's you can't really call something, but knowing the way that WWE have worked with their talents and the whole hoarding, I think it probably would have. I mean, he's, he was always going to be a huge name in terms of wrestling because like, he was the biggest indie in darling going at the moment and like I said earlier, he's like the one to WWE that got away but, but you don't know if he was actually going to be that big of a star if they had held on to him or what. So I think just knowing that the way the WWE honed their talent, depending on where he went, NXT he might have, but that he it would be a big fish in a small pond. Ron SmackDown he would probably get lost in the shuffle somewhere because he's not a homegrown WWE talent in some people's eyes. So I th- I think him staying in Japan and sort of keeping keeping himself like a big name on the independent scene, not only working in Japan but working in America and doing like tours as well. That it was probably the best move for him.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah definitely I, quickly before we go into the next match one other wee thing obviously round about this, this spell this year or so time the Bullet Club stable with Kenny Omega as part of it took a completely different direction we got Cody coming in we saw development the likes of Hangman Page do you think if Kenny had left at this point in time we would have an AEW uh, would the Bullet Club have reached the same level with, with the likes of Cody and the Americanisation side of things that we got to over the next 18 months or so
4: I think without Kenny, Bullet Club would still remain huge because it was already a major stable with two big names before him with Devitt, Mel Ballard and Styles. Mm-hmm. But I feel that if Cody took over, it might have been judged a little bit too much by the former WWE guy now taking over. And I felt that might have hampered them a little bit. AEW might have still came to fruition but I don't think it would be the same product because it's missing that one of the key figures vision for it.
1: Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah, De- I think it, I'm think i not too sure that maybe the likes of Cody would have got to the same I think he was kind of elevated being alongside Kenny Omega as that kind of faction type warfare between the two of them, so I think it actually helped Cody start just as much as it helped Kenny Omega style personally start.
4: Yeah, I'd say that.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to the the match now and this one was kind of oh Pritch Okada kind of challenged uh, Omega after he beated uh, Ishii at the Wrestling Don Taku show if that's pronounced correctly that one uh, I'll go around the panel and start getting your opinions on this particular match uh, Sarah what do you think of the early exchanges in this contest?
5: I mean the first thing that I noticed when it came to this match was Okada's cape and his robe when he came to the ring it was bloody spectacular well, let me just say that like my <laughs> actual note is dang that cake. so but no like it barely blows it was de- it was definitely something I mean you can see I've also got my notes is, oh no he hurt his knee and that's going to be like the clear selling point to this match mm-hmm. is to not only establish Kenny as a heel but as that dominant force that you know has got a chip on their shoulder for not being able to beat Okada.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, definitely. Scott Sarah hit the nail on the, one of the first points that kind of came to me was both Omega, he was constantly targeting this leg, you know, he was pretty much doing it for a good point in, the, in that match. He, the, that was kind of a wise strategy to kind of take down the bigger man And Okada, something that we kind of see a lot in wrestling, but it was well done the way the innovation of it.
2: Yeah, definitely, because especially it. Takes out a lot of Okada's moves, kind of like the the drop kick that everybody talks about. And I remember watching the opening exchanges and Omega, when he like doing ex- doing ex- open exchanges, he came out unbelievably fast in the ring. But I could get a lot of feeling that it was a more desperation on his part because I think going into it, there was a feel of Okada's already proving he can beat Omega, whereas it's more on a case of Omega to prove he can beat Okada.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I- what
4: was your thinking on this one? I mean, early on I had a few interesting thoughts because there was one thing pointed out in commentary which I thought made it interesting was that despite Bullet Club still being clear heels in Japan at this point, on the go home match before this, Omega opted not to give Okada a beatdown because he wanted Akada at 100% to say, I can beat him. And you could see that they'd been scouting each other's moves out, things like stopping the rise of the Terminator and then Akada doing the big high-risk tope where he crashed on his knee, setting that selling point. The the match had a very similar starting style, but quickly elevated itself and separated itself from the original.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like a lot of the aspects that Grant said about they were doing different things about it, but at the same time they were doing some good throwbacks to the the match we had before. We talked about the table spot in the first match, there was Mm -hmm. a point in the match where it looked like they were going to go for the table spot again, but uh, Omega scouted it a wee bit so they were doing a lot of wee throwbacks to that first match to kind of think obviously like Omega is the man who lost the first match going no I've learned from my mistakes I've studied this match and I'm going to try get the better of you which I think is clever in a wrestling rivalry like this
5: well no, you can definitely see it in the progression of the matches like you see callbacks from the previous matches building on like previous stories as well because mm-hmm. um, like you know like like you just said like the table spot and like okada doing the jump over the barrier as well to kenny in the audience essentially it's like it's little small stuff like that that you're like right okay they did this in the last match and it it sort of doesn't make it feel like oh they've just again thrown this together they've they've thought about it as well um and actually took time to tell a story as instead of oh we're going to have a rivalry that's going to pan two years or something, we're going to fight every weekend, and it's just... it's going to be different things. Whereas this, it builds on top of each other, so that you don't feel that you've actually lost a part of the story, as well, because you always know what's happened before. It, it feels like a like a mini-TV series in the ring. It's like the previously on, and then it links all everything in together.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but one real constant as well Scott, throughout this match which again I feel it's, like it's shows how the way they kind of play the strength of this finisher the one wing angel counters again they were mm-hmm. getting, there were so many different variations again of this one it just kind of one it showed that Okada was smart and that you kind of how to, to uh, get the better of this move and it also helped sell that this move probably was going to be the thing that finished off Okada whenever Omega eventually hits it
2: yeah definitely because we talked about in the first match the how clever Okada was, the way he countered it, because he clearly wasn't taking Omega lightly going into that match, and I think it, it really established both of those moves as moves to be protected, and it didn't devalue it by having them hit it in the first match, but have Okada kick out, then protect it, and feel it with that kind of doubt in your mind that if Mega had, had a chance to hit that move, he would have took the title from Okada, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but like, there is a moment in fact where he finally does hit it. But the exhaustion i think at this stage plays a factor because he hits it i think he forgets how close O'Cad is to the ropes mm-hmm. and O'Kad gets foot on the rope so like, he has hit it but you gotta think again if he hadn't been so close to the rope would that have been it? and you see like the emotion the frustration on Omega's face that he made such a, like, a rookie mistake i think
1: yeah no definitely with that one I've, I've noted that one actually myself you actually mentioned as well the kind of exhaustion factors of it uh, Grant the match obviously goes to a one-hour time limit draw. So, of one hour of wrestling, you know, it's not a thing you see very often in that one. And I think in terms of the way it kind of went to a, a, a time limit draw, some people may kind of draw some form of comparisons in a way to what we kind of saw at WrestleMania 12 between Shawn Michaels and Burnett Hart. The Iron Man match that pretty much went to a, a draw time limit and then they had to go to overtime. Could you potentially see any forms of that comparison actually being a thing, or is that just... Obviously, it's two completely things
4: looked at separately. Definitely, I could feel similar comparisons to an extent in regards to the overall match length, but because the styles of match, I feel they come across completely different. Iron Man matches can have a kind of start stop rhythm with the whole one fall or a DQ, whatever, whereas this was just one consistent long match where neither man was willing to give an inch to the other and a thing that I quite liked in it as well is playing into the bigger story of gaijin wrestlers in New Japan was when the big elbow got hit on Omega by Okada, big risk by Okada that one, Red Shoes has more focused on the Bucks than stopping that and it plays into the whole story of Omega and Bullet Club being hated by the New Japan office.
1: Am I I to say that Red Shoe's referees every one of these matches? He maybe he doesn't referee the
4: third one, but he definitely referees three of the four. He's your, he's your, he's your, big, your big, ref like your WWE oh. sort of
1: thing. Like if it's your-
5: if it's your main event, Red Shoes is going to be the going to be the referee. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, Red Shoes, his excitement towards the finish of this match. There's a when uh, the final remaker gets hit, he literally leaps out up from the air. I don't know if he's noticed that. <laughs>
5: he's
1: filled with absolute excitement of it. I think he just kind of wants to drag. Over over themselves. <laughs> you know pin him. him you know uh, but Sarah Grant uh, actually mentioned something brings me on to the next point uh, he mentioned Red Shoes focusing more on the Bucks and uh, we kind of got a wee bit of shenanigans in this match that we didn't get in any of the other type of matches something we don't see too much in New Japan matches we got the Bullet Club guys coming out Cody going to try and throw the towel in but mm-hmm. the Bucks being there to kind of say no don't do this keep it going at on that one What was your thoughts on the whole Bullet Club involvement in this particular match like that?
5: I mean, you've got to have other stories building on top of stories at the same time. I mean, this was not only a story for Omega and Okada to have their long rivalry, but you also had to do some form of revitalization for Bullet Club, because it was every now and again, someone would get kicked out, someone would join, or like this is how they say that no man is bigger than like the actual club because that that pans back to to balor um and the whole bucks thing as well um so that i I feel like it did kind of help it also like see when i was sitting looking at this like at the time you're not going to think about it but seeing now that we're in the future and aw's up and running it sort of made it feel like the whole continuisation that Cody was going to throw in the towel for Kenny, and then MGF threw in the towel for Cody, and this leads on to bigger stories in and off there. So that was that was like one thing I did take away because this was this was Cody trying to like you could some people could argue if you didn't know any better that he just saw that he was exhausted, he didn't want him to continue. But at the same time, this was you making like also thinking that Cody believed that Kenny actually couldn't do it. Um, and it was the Bucks that had the belief in Kenny said, so like no just leave him he's fine if he wants to he'll you know stay down for the three or he'll tap out or something like that so I think when it came to stories it was another wee branch off as well because again this is the story of Kenny Omega being the big star. Yeah the, what you
1: mentioned about the title actually was quite an interesting point I've never actually thought about that before with the whole, if, of it, if they had a bit more of a relationship with Yu Japan, they might have actually referenced something like that on air, mm-hmm. you never know. But yeah. now, it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of point to go across on. But Scott, again, the point of exhaustion kind of came across quite a lot in this match. Obviously, it's a 90 minute match, they're so naturally going to get knackered. And I think one of the best bits of Sally I kind of see in terms of an exhaustion Okada goes for the Rainmaker, and Omega just falls. Mm-hmm. Like, literally falls. It's a fantastic bit of selling from Kenny Omega. It just shows how good he is at playing that kind of character and selling an opponent's offence
2: like that. Yeah, I, I think that's the moment that when people thought about this match or coming out of it, everybody was talking about. And I think it's a case of, well, these guys clearly both have like, great stamina. to go matches this long. It just shows like believability that even the best will get tired after a certain while. And what I did love is how Kenny was selling the exhaustion even when Cape Cody came out. To uh, tell him, but it was almost like when he noticed that Cody had to tell, he gained this like second life, and he just started firing all these moves at Okada, and like, all of the club are all around the ring, and they're all just cheering Cody Kenny on, and like it wills them. It feels like they believe and it wills you in at home hope to believe that Kenny might actually do this. And what's interesting is all of how it continues the storyline with the club and the eventual descent to Okayo, and think like, for the next year is that. Cody then tries to one up Kenny, and like immediately after the match, when Okada is like in the back amongst all like the reporters and he's exhausted, Cody's there immediately challenging him to a show they have in the US the next month. And then there's a bit during that match where Cody tries to convince Brandy that they need to throw the fill in, so they're kind of mirroring both matches.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting. So, this, this, this probably was the start of the whole Bullet Club. Uh, gang type well, internal warfare thing that we kind of seen that eventually led to the formation of the elite.
4: I mean that was definitely the, the sort of the building blocks of the eventual Bullet Club civil war which lasted a very long time.
1: Yeah and then it just kind of stopped <laughs> like very abruptly you know they just kind of went oh we're no longer part of Bullet Club now we're our own stable and then <laughs> you know uh, AW happened, all that happened and obviously the, the rest of the say it's history on it. In terms of the finish, guys, did you actually, were you happy about the draw? Do you think it was the right choice? Obviously, in hindsight, it makes sense, but at the, t- uh, if you, at the time, obviously, it's better for Grant Scott, obviously, say just knew about it in advance. Do you think this was the right call at the time?
2: Uh, I think, given that, like we said, it was like 40 45 minutes in the first match, mm-hmm. I think you, if you want to, in hindsight, if you want to, like, a, one up that match, why make <laughs> the second match as memorable? I think that was probably the only thing they could have done had them other than put the belt on Kenny, which I don't think they were ready to do just yet, even though he'd been there for quite a while. And I think the moment and the way they built the match, I think it really you in and you were meant to feel a bit like robbed when the belt goes, because it's Okada crawling towards Omega. But I think in hindsight, it was the right decision, to do because the way they, they put it together, it's it's great that it was as loved as it was because. Nowadays it's very rare to see a one-hour time limit draw because I think the common thought about society today is that we said we have so much form different forms of entertainment, uh, our attention spans are a lot like harder to keep, like our attention spans are a lot shorter. So, where do these guys were able to make a one-hour match so like so much, so good for you to invest in? Yeah, I think this is the best of the three.
1: It's my personal best of the four. Sorry, I think this is the best of the series. What do you guys think?
5: Oh yeah, that's my I mean, I would say it is one, It's probably like one of the top ones, but I think just for me, I I'm not used to viewing our long matches, so my attention span was a bit falling in and out. And uh, yeah, I think like my opinion, like it's not the best of them, but that's just because I just couldn't pay attention, mm-hmm. um, and I think I was just a bit, a bit worn out. Mm -hmm. at watching it so like I wouldn't say any of the matches were probably like the worst like you've asked us which one like in what way I would rate this so it's like I said match number one I would say is third but I would say that this match for Dominion was like third but just just slightly better because again it's building blocks but in my opinion like I prefer match number four Mm -hmm. out of the entire the entire series
1: Interesting
4: Grant, you were going to add your point now. Yeah, I mean for me it's it's my second favourite match the particular excitement like even like Don Callis and Kevin Kelly on commentary for the English commentary going absolutely nuts 30 seconds to go but you only need 3 seconds to get the win and Okada just not being able to make it it, it sucked me in and it was definitely my second favourite in the series firmly uh,
2: Scott, what did you think? I think because I watched like all these like, uh, matches again over the course of the week is quite while at the time it might seem weird to like, try and keep focusing on a one hour match it's, given that we're in lockdown, it's a case of well, what else am I going to do <laughs> with my day? And I think especially with this rewatch, I think the second one for me given like, the way it ties into the other like, big storyline which was the dissension in bullet club it built on the first match and what would take- come later I think this has to be the best it of before
1: Mm-hmm. yeah you make a good point Like, what have we got better to do we can watch four of the best matches that the company's ever produced or we can watch the government continuously tell us it's not, we're not at that stage to tell you the plan yet so you just have to stay <laughs> in but that's, that's for the political uh, podcasts not for the wrestling podcast we hate to talk about these matches and we're going to take actually a short break here after we've just finished talking about the second match and when we come back from a break we're going to talk about match three and match four Uh, it'll be interesting to hear the guys points on that but we're going to take a short break first and we'll see you in a bit
0: wrestling has more than one royal family
5: hey guys this is Randy Rhodes and you
0: are listening to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet today we're looking back to a night that shook the world the main event at Wrestle Kingdom 11 There was no doubt the two best fighters in the pro wrestling world would give their absolute best, but how close was the ultimate decision? Okada was six months into his fourth reign as IWGP Heavyweight Champion, a title he's held for nearly the past 18 months. The Rainmaker, wrestling's gold standard, was constantly praised as the best fighter to walk the planet. In the other corner, the first foreign G1 Climax winner, Kenny Omega. Winning the G1 Climax means you get a contract for an IWGP heavyweight title shot at Wrestle Kingdom. Oh God, uh... Oh yeah, I have never beat you, I have never wrestled you. But for Omega, it meant more than just a title. You made me sick. Everything you have was given to you given to you by this company but that's not to say you haven't been a good champion you have protected japanese wrestling he wanted the keys to the company's driver's seat i am taking the main event of tokyo dome and i'm going to take everything that you treasure and there are no shortcuts around the ace as he's proven time and time again Trying to pinpoint Okada's weakness is useless. His opponents will have to break right through his core. And that's exactly the strategy Kenny Omega developed that night at Tokyo Dome. The cleaner concentrated on working out the champ's midsection and lower back, attempting to weaken his kickouts. With the leg hook and his shoulders down! He knew that he had one opportunity to hit Okada with his finishing move. A move that nobody in New Japan has ever kicked out of the one-winged angel. But Okada's immense core strength renders him practically unbreakable on defense. While his offense is focused and heavy, consisting of overwhelming bursts that he can unleash at any time. So, Omega was forced to be as reckless as ever, anything to devastate the defending champ. Patient, calculated, and painstaking blows delivered to his kidneys, his midsection, and center chest to soften Okada's incredible warrior spirit. All the while, the wild Omega had to withstand abuse and avoid being caught with the Rainmaker, Okada's trusted finisher that could close the curtain for Kenny. Rainmaker, no! Ah! Going back to the original strategy. Core, lower back, kidneys. This crowd is on fire! V-trigger after V-trigger. It seemed as though Okada's iron will was close to slipping away. Will a one-winged angel end this? Will Kenny Omega be the IWGP heavyweight champion who brings New Japan into its greatest golden age? There's room for only one at the wheel, but who has the resiliency to endure the pain? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet.
1: Back to Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet I'm Stephen Wilson I'm joined by Sarah Scott Grant and Kwaku And we are talking about the series of matches Between Okada and Omega From U Japan Pro Wrestling We're going to jump right in And we're going to talk about Match 3 And this one was took place during The G1 Climax of 2017 Grant I'm going to throw it on to you on this one uh, That G1 Climax Is often classed as Many, by many fans.
4: is the best G1 Climax of all time. It's, it was an absolutely outstanding one and really the matches in it, the, it really showed how brutal that schedule can be on the wrestlers themselves. So many grueling matches, big ones, um, but the, like the story going into that one with like their third meeting in less than nine months, which when you compare that to other promotions like WWE and that, you'd normally like, match 345 in nine months by now. But you had Omega riding high at that point as the US champion, just newly introduced belt. But for this, Omega, the pressure was on. He needs to beat the person he's never beat to get to the finals and aim for the back-to-back G1s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: Sarah, obviously, I kind can't of the third match of the series, they've got to do something to kind of make these matches feel bigger and bigger each time, and going into this, when this was the final group match, it was essentially winner goes to the final. Okada came in, He had one loss to Evo and one draw to Suzuki. Omega had only lost twice to Michael Mm -hmm. Elgin and Juice Robinson. So these two were going riding high and they dominated the group. I feel like other than putting the title on the line again, this is the only way they could have made it feel bigger for the third time meeting.
5: Yeah, because the the actual implications of it, I mean, Kenny had to win, it was a do or die. Kenny had to win to get through to the final, Mm -hmm. whereas Okada could have settled for a draw. Or a win just to advance, so it it did up the ante in terms of Kenny's got to beat the person he's never been able to actually beat. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like set said, apart from putting the belt on the line, which there was no point in them like doing considering like the the stipulations that come from the G1 anyway. If Kenny was going to pin him, even if he won the G1 or not, he would get a shot at that title belt somewhere down the line. So it it would just go to show that if you're going to put this, if you're going to continue this and go, right, we can make this end like in another wee while, and we can continue building without a doubt, two of our biggest stars um, that have the most incredible chemistry together, mm-hmm. that this is how you're going to do it. I mean, it was just the fact that their only match was scheduled to be the final match of the B Block.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Scott, said I mentioned that obviously, Kenny had to win this match, had to win this match both to win the group and obviously to stop him going 2-1 to, 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 to not down to Okada and I'm sure in the very early exchanges in this match he was going for all these big moves within the first few minutes of this match.
2: Yeah I definitely think this was a must win for him man especially since he was also the US champion and like that belt was so newly established and it felt like at the time uh, just in my opinion that Kenny winning the title as part again as this like international expansion of the company, it felt like it was almost a consolation thing that Kenny didn't want the big belt, but he can be the first holder of this new title. And uh, he did well with the title while he had it. But it was interesting to see these two in the G1 because the idea of these matches are 30 minutes, have a 30 minute time limit. These guys couldn't beat each other in their last match and they had 60. So. It felt like the opening exchange was very much similar to the opening exchanges in the other matches but was kind of setting fast forward because they knew time is of the essence and something I, I meant to say about their first match is that with spots like the the Dragon Suplex off the top and stuff like that, it was all parking and of Omegas plan He set up for the one-winged Angel She was never really hit which was by a target in the back, the upper back and the neck area of Okada and coming into this because they drew one such a grueling tournament. Okada comes in with that particular era wrapped in tape, so basically he's got a bullseye from the opening bell and Omega makes sure to target that during the match he even rips the tape, off, the tape off at one point
1: Oh definitely, the back is definitely targeting two particular moves but the poison ran on the outside and the dragon suplex on what is described simply now as the hardest part of the ring
3: <laughs>
4: Snapdragon on the apron, was absolutely brutal looking. Um, another match, another sorry, another move which really helped it, and it's a move that hadn't been broken out for a whole year. Croix's wrath, the electric mm-hmm. chair into the German, extra impact right on the back and neck as well, just to really make sure it counts. And, and under- that,
1: the angle it gets on that German, it's frighteningly, frighteningly good. <laughs> it's absolute precision, you know.
4: Oh yeah, the precision on them, I mean, even going back to one of the previous matches, the second one with the knee and Omega doing like a missile drop kick, bang on to the knee, not even aiming for the top of the body, just the knee. It shows the level of athleticism that they've got, that they can do it so fast, so precise. Yeah, definitely.
1: Sarah, uh, so I'm going to do my first bit of of this series. Eh... <laughs> uh... I thought the early exchanges in this match maybe had too many aspects that we saw in the first two matches. There wasn't as much originality until we kind of started seeing that kind of dragon's place to the apron, the hat, that, that German that Grant talked about. Would you say I'm being too critical?
5: I mean, in a way, yes, you, you are being a little bit critical about it. Um, but at the same time, I can see why you're being critical because. Um, It's basically like we've not been able to beat um like Omega's not been able to beat Okada with this particular move set, so why would he keep going back to it? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know that Okada is not one hundred percent health with the tape on his back. So going back to the same move set, it's just like, well, maybe all you have to do is catch him off guard for three and there's the amount of times that he nearly does. I mean, I lost count of how many V triggers. That Kenny Omega hits in this match as well um, and like the Poison Rana is, like, is one of my least favorite moves like I hate it I absolutely hate it when people hit it but that's just because I'm the sort of person that I know that that can really paralyze someone if it goes wrong and so it makes me cringe and I think it was like it's when the drop kick into the Poison Rana on the outside that that just I was just like nope I'm not having any of that
1: do you think Kenny Omega does the V-trigger too much nowadays? You think it's something he really pulls out far too often, or do you think he does it the right amount?
5: I mean getting a knee to the face is never fun. So of course, of course like pulling out that V-trigger is going to it's all you have to do is, is to knock someone out. So if you know exactly where to hit someone on their face, then yeah, I would pull out as many times as he did as well. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Uh, de- uh no, definitely. Uh Grant, what does, uh, what does Kenny Omega call that Uranagi move that he does? Because he, he counters a Rainmaker into this sort of twisting Uranagi, and it looks absolutely amazing, but I've never seen him do it since. I,
4: I don't even think that was one of his like, signature moves to have a name, because his main sort of signatures were things like the Wrath, the, the Big German. It um, was also the, the Dr. Wily bomb, which is just a power bomb, absolute authority, but that Uranagi was just something that he just it broke out, it's, it's I think Omega's really evolved, this move set over the years, and I'm back watching these old pre-New Japan stuff like DDT and stuff and I'm seeing stuff that I've never seen Omega do since.
1: Yeah, it's, it's pretty much, it was, I, I, that was the one thing that kind of stood out to me, that was the one point I found, right, right they're doing a wee bit differently, maybe my early criticalness of the, the too many moves was uh, a wee bit harsh but I really liked that one. Uh, Scott, you obviously mentioned time limits on this one. We have a 45-minute match to open the series. We've got the hour match in the second and then the one we'll talk about in a wee bit that goes on for longer than an hour. Sometimes a lot of people say currently now in wrestling there's too many focus on the big bout feel that kind of match that needs to go on half an hour to be great. Do you think this match was an example of a match that doesn't need to have that length of time and still be a good match?
2: I think so because, again, it, it created that tension that they could easily have went to a draw again. Given it's only thirty minutes, and it's weird to think that in a series of matches, the match that just went under thirty minutes is the shortest one, which is something you don't really see a lot of. To kind of go back to a point you may see I actually notice, like some of the similarities as well, because uh, like, especially in like the opening sequences, they seem to do similar spots and like especially in matches kind of two and three. But I think you'd notice that a lot more when you watch these matches so close after the other. As kind of I did when I was like watching them back for this show.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I
1: watched the I was back to back, but I watched the stuff in this matches. And that's why it kind of it kind of stood out to me. But maybe if I kind of didn't see the match, obviously if I watched the real time, you'd be like, right, okay, that's that's this part of his move type idea. But there's only so many times I can see a man in Vucadis height do a cross body into the crowd. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it, it's like I like it the first time, but it's like one of the big it's like. I'm trying to think examples. Like when I first saw a Pace suicider, I was like, that move looks amazing. And then I go to shows and I see it in every match. I'm like, right, okay, fair enough. We know you can fly. <laughs> you know, in this one. Um Sarah, what did you think about the timing? Do you think did you like that you mentioned earlier on in the match two, it went on a wee bit too long and your concentration was starting to go on. Did you feel a lot more focused watching this?
5: I think that, I think my concentration was going because I watched it right after the first match. Um, so it was like match one, match two had a break and then I watched matches three and four consecutively mm-hmm. um, but like because we were discussing this in the chat as well like Grant making the point that it's for easy viewing because people can pay close attention to a 30 minute match like that's not the reason that I got invested in the fact It's like the reason that I got invested was not only the fact that you had the storyline going behind it But the fact that it was like a proper reason to have a 30 minute time limit, it was the B block final of the g one Classic and that has got to be like a certain time limit. Um, So I think that's probably what helped in terms of catching on. um, Because especially in New Japan they like to announce how long the matches are going just so that they know that they're keeping up with the time limit. Because going back to match two, when they announced it was at like 50 or 55 minutes, you hear the crowd going, Ooh, because they actually didn't realize. And I was just like, holy, wait, I was like, wait, that's been like an error. Are you kidding me? I was like, how are they still alive? Like a little wrestling. Um, but you can see that 20 minutes into the match, this is something that I've got. Like after like the flying V trigger and like the big massive Yorunagi that I just called the big Yorunagi. Um, and... <laughs> Kenny's back is purple at this rate and this is two-thirds into the match and you're sitting going there's still 10 minutes left and each each of the men are just like what have we got to pull out I mean you've pulled out uh, a Yuranagi you've pulled out like a one-winged angel counter into a tombstone like it's just like what have you what have you got left to do to put this man away Um, Yeah.
1: But he does eventually hit that one with Angel and he finally gets the victory over Okada. I'm actually going to go with Grant, because I'm going to put him on the spot because I know how big of a Tetsuya Naito fan he is. <laughs> uh, see, after Kenny Omega won this match, finally got the, the monkey off his back, should he have won the G1 for a second year in a row?
4: I'll be honest, I don't think he should have. I think Naito's the right one to win it and I'm still raging that they never pulled the trigger on Naito at the Wrestle Kingdom after it.
1: I would agree on you <laughs> that one. I thought that was a bit of a... I kinda of felt flat watching that one. I was actually the first Wrestle King that I watched a lot of it through because of that Omega Jericho match. And uh, it was just you got through that match and you got the main event, you're like, right, oh Card won. This is why he's the Japanese John Cena. Yeah,
2: win. Whoa. <laughs> That's
1: maybe a bit harsh. Uh, there's uh, Scott, what did you think? Did you think Omega should have gone on to win the G one?
2: I don't think he really needed it because he'd, he'd gotten the win over Okada, which meant you knew eventually they would have one more match. You just didn't know when. And also he had the US belt, and he was went on. He basically had, even though he wasn't in the main event, he went on. He had that match with Jericho, which you could argue was one of the more high-profile ones, more so than the main event. And I remember it was a big thing where like Omega said, "I have two goals in mind in the way of winning this G1. One, I want to finally beat Okada, which he did." and he wanted to fight Ibushi in the final and he just missed out on that because Ibushi had lost to Naito uh, so, and then Naito went on to beat Omega which is interesting because they were in the A block the uh, the year before when on the way Omega winning his first uh, G1 but uh, they see what's going uh, on the with Naito at that Wrestle I think given that eventually they went back I had him beat Okara for not only the main belt but for the IC belt as well at this year's Wrestle Kingdom I think in the long term they kind of made up for that because we haven't really talked a lot about the fact that all of these matches were part of this big like 700 day reign that okada was on i think at the time when when naito didn't beat him and omega kept failing to beat him that's when became like like you said the japanese john cena that like well when are you who is going to take the belt from okada Mm -hmm.
1: where would you rank this match in the four
2: scott uh, These are probably my second favorite behind the uh, the era uh, long draw. Mm,
1: interesting. Uh, Sarah, what do you think?
5: Um, I think just probably in terms of cause, like I couldn't really pick between the first and second matches, but I wouldn't rank this higher than the second match. Like it's all very very close net, but like I said, like the fourth match was my favorite overall. I mean it's my favorite. I've got like four pages of notes on it. <laughs> because i was that into it Um and but like i said this was me watching them for the very first time um instead of like watching them for maybe like the second or in grant's case probably like the 20th or 25th time um, and <laughs> correct me if i'm wrong am i wrong
4: it's definitely double digits for viewing these matches and that's a lot of viewing things <laughs> where,
5: where
1: would
3: you
4: put where would you put it Grant? it's actually my least favorite of the matches but my still one of my it's an overall favourite match of mine in wrestling in general because it's it's exemplifying what the G1 was but in the scale of those matches it feels like the small fish
1: Yeah, it's probably one of the best matches of that G1 but it's the worst of the series to me It's not say it's a bad match but it's just not at the same level which is obviously now going to bring us on to the final match of the series which was match number 4 it's Obviously, it was one one going into it, and this was two out of three falls with no time limit. Sarah, I will start with you on this one. <laughs> we had a one year, about a one-year gap between this match and the match we just talked about. Did you think that that was what this match needs? A bit of a time to let the two of them go off, do other things, and then eventually come to a head again?
5: I mean, definitely. I mean, when- definitely. I actually like mentioned this. I was like, this is quite. I mentioned it to Dan because he he explains all New Japan stuff to me because I'm clueless. But I was like, this is quite a long, a long time period. And he was like, not in New Japan. Like this is actually kind of average. So it was it's interesting to get like different perspectives on what they deem because I noticed that you can see between matches like from actually from match one to four. Is Kenny's popularity has went shooting through the roof. He
1: came in as a face in this match. He was a heel in
5: the other ones. Yeah, um, but you can still see that, um, like throughout this match, that he, he did revert back to like heel tactics and everything. That's like he had broken off from Bullet Club. Essentially, he had joined back up with Kota Ibushi, and there's a couple. There, it's like a couple of things that, like again, add to the storytelling. Um, so I think. See, having making this a two out of three falls, I've said this so many times that I believe a two out of three falls match is the perfect way to finish a rivalry. Yeah. Worth and worth. yeah, and you've got no time limit as well, so it's just like just let them fight it out, see who's the who's the best man, and that it it was basically the perfect way to wrap it all up in a wee bowl. <laughs> Uh
1: Grant, you're a man of impeccable fashion taste. Uh, talk <laughs> to us about Okada's types. <laughs>
5: Oh
4: man, the, 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 t- the tights. Everyone was missing Okada's thighs by this point. Oh. That, that was a sign of real Okada. I mean, oh. building on what Sarah was saying there, there was quite a lot of big stats going into this as well because of that extra long gap between the matches. Mm-hmm. We had the Golden Lovers back together. After Ibushi saved Omega from Cody and Abaterin, the Bucks friendship with Kenny was on the edge. And at this point... Their three matches combined were 2 hours, 11 minutes, 26 seconds of in-ring time. Meek. And Okada was on a world record beating 720 Days Rain as heavyweight champ. 12 defences beating all of Tanahashi and mm-hmm. sent him as the golden boy. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this is the point you guys have been waiting for. This is my rebuttal on, on Okada. Now, <laughs> people are... I'm often quite criticised because I'm not the biggest Okada fan and people say, what do you not see about him? See in this particular match and most of this series of criticism, some of his moves come across so slow and so ineffective for Japanese wrestling, or just wrestling in general. He does a DDT during this match that so looks like it takes him about half an hour to land it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what's, what's your thoughts? I, uh, give, give me your reasons, you know. because. I just think he does- I think Kenny Omega makes him look so much better than he actually is.
5: Grant, do you want to take this one?
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I'll, I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll give you one thing. Now, this is the one bit of criticism I'll give Okada. This is probably one of the things you hear me say, is I think the Rainmaker is one of the worst finishers yeah. in all of wrestling. It's,
1: absolutely, mm-hmm. it's, it's so bad. I think the only time he actually hits it well is the one that ends the match. Occasionally,
4: like, when he kind of spins him, uh, but that's often his opponent, it helps him make it look better. <laughs> I note, note of pretty much every Rainmaker, and we're talking double digits across the previous matches, which to me is not a very efficient finisher, but to no. me, Okada, I mean, I've had the, the luxury of seeing him live multiple times, actually getting to go to a meet and greet with him. The guy's presence, he's got a charisma. Uh, he's, to me, he's, he's in ring, some people might think it's slow at points, but I think it's more deliberate. It can make it look more nasty. I'm setting them up, I'm taking an extra bit moment, because I want to make this DDT spike you. I want this to hurt.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I, I, I would actually agree with that. I mean, I think every single time that I've watched Okada, um, especially when in this match when it comes to heal Okada, that it's just like, nah, I'm, I'm wanting to make you suffer. Uh, And the best way to do that is slowly and painfully. Mm
1: -hmm. I've actually got some stats from uh, a great wrestling source for Japanese wrestling. It's Pro Wrestling Musings.
5: I thought you were going to say David Hockney there. Oh,
1: no. About about Japanese wrestling? Please. No, it's the Pro Pro Wrestling Musings site on Twitter, at PW Musings. They do a lot of great stats on the actual, you know, your grappling side of wrestling that and the striking that you Japan's known for. I think the Rainmaker gets hit fifteen times in the course of these four matches. Well if you look at the one wing angel gets hit five times. Mm -hmm. Three of them are in this final match. There's only two in the matches beforehand, you know. And an interesting one part as well it's got to go you in this one Apparently Kerry Omega attempts 200 offensive manoeuvres in this
2: final match alone hmm. uh, Well I think it, it's fair because this is the longest one But talking about your thing on Okada I It took me longer to come around on Okada than did Omega Because Omega I very quickly saw why everyone was so fond of him But there were times where I just didn't get it with Okada and i'm not saying he doesn't have good matches because he has quite a lot of great matches and i think it's clear of course this that to me i just think omega is the better one of the two and i think there's a reason why these matches are talked about so highly and both of them play like their part in this but like things like we granted about the rainmaker like it's the fact that the short spinning short arm clothesline and but your move to set it up as a sleeping spinning tombstone like Surely that should be flip reverse, you know, hit the short arm clothesline to then fit, set up your finisher which should be the spinning tombstone.
1: I feel like, see watching these back to back, you mm-hmm. kind of see, Omega's got a lot more variation while as Akada, you kind of watch them all and I think you see the same moves quite a lot and I'm saying this as a man who's predominantly watches WWE that I've heard years of John Cena get criticised for doing the same moves over and over again. Now, I'm not going to actually compare the two of them in ring because you can't really do that because they've never actually wrestled in the same environment at any point. So, but, if you kind of there is similarities in the kind of moves set on it, but they obviously are a lot different. I'll end my piece on, on criticising Okada. We'll go back to the match. Sarah, you've got a lot of notes <laughs> on this one. Uh, I actually do. You, what else, Steve? What's, what's your thoughts on some of the stuff that went on?
5: um well i think like see how you talked about there's only so many times you can watch him do the barrier jump mm-hmm. i was like i'm pretty sure like if i am wrong please correct me that but okada did actually do that in every single match yes he did. Um but it was only this time that it went and kenny managed to pull it into the v trigger well it is because that again it brings it back to the past matches because there was something else later on I called it the Death Valley Monkey Flip I don't actually know what Kenny calls it (laughs) right? Um, and he was like saying you can't escape doing the moonsault and every single time Okada was able to get the knees up like it's stuff like that it's small little callbacks it's like you've tried this it didn't work before why is it going to work now Um, and when I was sitting having a look at it as well um, you can see that this is the next chapter or the final chapter in a story because you can see how familiar they had become with each other Um, like it was how to like counter moves or it's like I know exactly what you're going to do next but it was still unpredictable and believable and you had all the callbacks to the past matches because you're like this was was a story that they were telling instead of just putting together a few moves making it look cool and then having it done at that Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was a, quite a few things. And then it was more bloody snapdragons. It's when Okara went to go and do the Rainmaker pose uh, and kind of just does a snapdragon right off of it. And you're <laughs> like, he it didn't, it didn't get to do the pose.
1: The camera's still zoomed out. <laughs> I <it> know. Big <laughs> <laughs> of, you, of you, uh, a grand, uh, Sarah mentioned the, there was that part of the match or the part of the, it, it felt like they knew each other so well. And I think the finish to the first fall the way that kind of went down kind of shows that they kind of they kind of know each other's move sets back, the, like the back to the back of their hand. That it takes something that feels a wee bit sneaky to actually get the first pin in the match.
4: Oh yeah, that was that was a total sneaking. Uh, by the way, Sarah, you were right that that you can't escape. That is actually the name of the move. You can't escape.
5: All oh, uh, right, I, I just called it the Death Valley Monkey Flip because that's what it looks like. It looks like a Death Valley yeah. Driver Monkey Flip.
4: <laughs> I mean you could see it when, when you got it everyone's like has like Don Callis being your kind of heel commentator he had yeah. the tight no no he just had the legs he got a sneaky little roll up with that and Okada was grinning from ear to ear after that first fall when I was right. watching
2: it. <laughs> I
4: wanted to smack you right across the chops right now
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it, it was interesting it did add bits and bits to it and the other thing Scott and Sarah mentioned of it the, the throwbacks are very well done in this one it's not like I said in the match three there was maybe too much stuff they'd done in the previous ones, but they kind of made good use of the throwbacks that we kind of saw previously and made to help mold this match into something.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think given how the three matches that they had had been in such close proximity to one another, uh, they quickly learned each other's moves. and It's clear that, you know, there'd been that year gap they hadn't forgotten. And what's interesting, I think, about the way the first fall ends is like the first like opening part of the match is opens a lot quicker than I'd expected it to because you think once they said it is no time limit, they uh, you can tell okay, it's definitely going to go an hour at least. Like you knew you were in for a long one, but they immediately like went for each other because it felt like they know that whoever gets the first fall kind of has an advantage because the second the guy has to the other guy has to then get two straight, which puts more pressure on them. And I would agree with what Sarah said. I mean, I think. The two or three falls match as a stipulation I think is way more effective than anybody would really give it credit for
1: mm-hmm. uh, Sarah what I'm quite interested to hear about you mentioned earlier on that match two you found you were starting to zone out a wee bit and yeah. uh, you've also classed match four as your favourite of the series which went on longer than whatever <laughs>
5: uh, I know so right
1: I'm quite curious to hear your reasons here.
5: I think it's like I, I think it also ties into the fact that it was a 2 out of 3 falls. And usually when you find with 2 out of 3 falls, it'll once a fall happens, they go straight into the next match. Whereas this one, they, they take little breaks. So they basically are determining three matches in the one go. And I think that's probably what made me pay attention to it a little bit more. Um, but that 2 out of 3 fall stipulation is probably what made me have a little bit more interest instead of just it being a straight match it's like there's a lot more to lose like but it's not kind of just potentially losing the belt to kenny it's potentially like being um made a made a mockery of as well um so i think it was it was basically that the reason that i probably enjoyed this a little bit more is because the two or three falls gave it a little something extra and i didn't actually mind it going the length of time it did, it, it did not feel like it. Because it was three matches split up into one.
1: Yeah, it does often. When they, when, they get the two, when they get a two out of three falls match quite right, it's you feel like you're... You, it doesn't feel like a slog. I mean, one of the matches, that two out of three falls match that sometimes felt a bit sloggy to me in recent memory, was that final Gargano Cole match on NXT last year. Mm-hmm. On the TakeOver show. I loved the first match the two did. But when they did that one that ended in the mad, crazy structure thing,
3: mm-hmm.
1: it was kind of like, oh, this is a bit of a slog. I could be here. I feel like I've been here all night." So, but when they get something perfectly like this one, you feel it, the, the, the hour and eighteen odd minutes that it is just goes in like nothing
3: else.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Grant, I've got in my notes here: Styles Clash. Explanation mark. Explanation
4: mark.
2: Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I loved that. I thought it was absolutely. I thought it was just shit houseery at
4: the best by uh, Kerry Omega. <laughs> I love the fact that Omega pulled out that, and they also pulled out another person's finisher in the same match. Yeah. He hit Okada with a kind Styles clash, which was absolutely phenomenal. But when you actually watch it, oh, I just realised I, I made a pun there. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> when
3: you
4: when you watch it, it's not quite as clean as when Styles does it. But at the same time, I think it sells the exhaustion by the fact that they are now. On the third, on the third fall. Um, good point about going into that second fall, because Omega hit that one-winged angel to get the second fall. Whereas, after the first fall, Omega was ready to go again. In the two minutes, mm-hmm. Okada was still on his arse.
5: Yeah, in my notes I've got, by this point, they're fucked. <laughs>
4: like, I don't like the name Ibushi's finisher that he stole for that match as well. The bastard. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I didn't I really notice
5: that one actually. You didn't notice
1: it. I didn't really notice it too much. I don't. i not. I have not watched as many Kota Bushi matches as many as I should have in my lifetime. My memory of Kota Bushi is still my most vivid memories of Kota Bushi stuff is still the CWC. I never yeah. actually seen Kota Bushi before that tournament. Everybody thought, everybody's like, this guy's amazing. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll judge it for myself. Then I watched that match with Sean Maluta, and I thought, my God, he's amazing. <laughs> That's just top of Sean Maluta.
4: <laughs> one of my favourite Koma Bushi things to see is him down in London shooting fireworks in the match
1: oh, I've, seen that, I've seen that clip <laughs> in the recent years actually that's absolutely amazing <laughs> uh, Scott Grant mentioned the exhaustion when he's hitting that Styles clash and I, we mentioned that in the, in the one hour time of the draw the, Kerry especially as well I think a lot of points he helped himself being absolutely knackered. I don't know if it's just him selling being knackered or he's mm-hmm. absolutely knackered just in general but it's, it makes it feel so real it makes it feel like these guys are just like you sometimes see matches that go on for a while and then they come out looking fresh as a daisy towards the end of it but this is like, we are genuinely
2: knackered Yeah, especially when I mean, it's going like over an hour and I think it adds more risk to that sales class because we've seen that move can go wrong at the best of times but when you're like not the person that usually hits it and plus you're like exhausted I think the margin for error was there's a lot more possibilities for error there but they managed to pull it off I think I think it I think he does when he wins both falls with the one the angel, but I think the one he uses for the third fall, the way he just picks up Mokara, but then pretty much almost as soon as he picks up he's drowning him down. This is, you can tell he doesn't have the energy to keep him there, he just wants to just hit the move and just get the match done. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Does it not counter the what, the Rainmaker into the one unit angel at one point? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, that's what I think I've got my Ra- notes. Rainmaker into one ring angel is lovely, <laughs> <laughs> stunning. It's 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 absolutely so so good. Um, the official time limit of the match is one hour and ten minutes. Uh, I'm trying to think of a match that's went on longer than ever, and I can off the top of my head.
4: Uh, David Starr, the 104 minute man.
1: Yeah. Ah yes, David Starr.
2: Or, End of the show. <laughs> or you could count uh, Chris Renfrew v. Joe Hendry, which went on for about a month.
1: Yeah.
4: Uh, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> if we're going down that way, I mean, Breed Wrestling, Session Moth, Martina and Gene Money are still in a match and I'm pretty sure it's been ongoing for over six months now.
5: I'm, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But then yeah. again, Kuma's still in the disco derby as well and that's been going for over two years now.
1: Yeah, that's very, that's very, very true. Uh, 720 days, the reign of Okada lasted.
3: Sera, yes.
1: do you think that to end a reign like this, you need something epic like we have saw in this match here?
5: Abso-freaking-lutely. I mean, if you're going to do it, at least do it in complete style, because this is... I'm pretty sure this is like one of the reasons that it led to the Okada sort of meltdown as well. <laughs> so
0: oh, Okada?
5: <laughs> um, yeah, so if you're gonna do it, like Okada was the unbeatable man, and Kenny basically he beat him twice in a row in one match, but twice in a row just in general as well. Uh, and for anybody who's had a 720 day title reign, of course they're gonna snap. Um, and I think it was definitely the big payoff for like the building. Of Kenny Omega since like he's come from being the new the newer member of the Bullet Club getting pushed and pushed, kicking out styles, and like at this point he had killed Adam Cole and all this <laughs> sort of stuff. Um and you had like the whole of what we now know as the elite. Um that it was the big payoff and that he climbed that he climbed that mountain. Um and it was also the fact that you could see that. Even the Japanese crowd were leaning more towards Kenny winning than Okada because they'd turned on Okada and Kenny was becoming one of their own instead. And like, it was just his popularity was through the roof, I'm pretty sure I saw a cat that looked like Kenny Omega Bullet Club style in the crowd.
1: Some, some of us had turned on Okada long before that.
5: <laughs> I don't think you were ever with Okada.
1: No, I was not. No, i said my piece. I do not want to get abuse on Twitter. Although I do that quite regularly anyway for no apparent reason, so
3: (laughs) enough on that one.
1: Uh, Grant, do you think Kenny Omega's title reign can be summed up in the kind of WWE title reigns that you have, like Kofi Kingston, the big payoff for the win, and the reign falls flat? Yeah, to
4: me, like the reign kind of fell flat because it became obvious that Omega had done everything that he wanted to and. You know, the whole writing was on the wall with eventual AEW happening. They were, they were hinting towards that. Cause I mean, even I felt it in the atmosphere when I went to All You had that feeling that Omega has done it all. There's nothing left from here. What does he do? Go start your own company?
1: I think that could be summed up by the absolute scowl he has on his face for the next year's Wrestle Kingdom main event. He did not look a happy bunny.
4: Oh, that was raging.
1: And, uh, uh, don't get me started a lot of people rate that match very highly I do not but that's for another day that's for another <laughs> day uh, Scott where would you put this in the, in the four?
2: I think this is probably third for me because I think I like the setup for this more than the actual match itself because the way they set up off is over the course of his reign Okaz getting more cocky on the mic and acting more heelish like this we're talking about and like like especially after when he beat Naito at the Tokyo Dome, he basically said to Naito, well, I guess you weren't ready to be in the main event, and which basically Naito references when he finally does beat Okada. Uh, so, and then there's a moment at Resident Attack where they set this match up, where Okada's going through all the people he's in his reigns and he comes to Omega, and that moment of realization where he realizes he's kind of one-on-one with Omega, because the second match went to a draw, and you can tell the idea of there being any doubt that he's the better man or the idea of someone being better than him is not, does not sit right with him so the way they set this match up but I think out of all of them the way they set it up with there being no time of as much as I like a two or three falls match I felt it was a case of this the timeline was basically a case of having it going long really for the sake of it more than the other one
1: yeah uh, def- definitely uh, Grant
2: what do you think
3: this was
4: by far my favourite of the matches because I was a huge omega mark at the time this was the payoff and also it has my favourite callback in the entire series when, oh, when Rainmaker gets hit and Okada's the one that collapses
5: yeah he's too like tired that. to actually do it oh, that's good
1: actually I really like that one as well that's mm-hmm. I've just got loads of things of exhaustion, just exhaustion, exhaustion, exhaustion Throughout this entire series. But no, I think that's a great actual spot as well. Sarah, we obviously know this is your number one. Is there anything else you want to say? Why it was your number one again?
5: Apart apart from the stuff that I've already said, it was like the epic fall of Okada and it, became, it that started that you know proverbial tumble back down the mountain. Um, and I think the reason that it was just my favourite is that like you had the big payoff, but. The, the breaks, the small, tiny breaks in between the matches gave you a chance to sort of revitalise as well. Because like you're sitting, concentrating, you're like, right, okay, I can relax for a couple of minutes now, and then you can start along with them. I think when it got to past the 60 minute mark, I was just like, how are they still alive, let alone fighting? Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: You've obviously said that your influence on Japan is related to obviously your better half. Dad. what's his favourite match of the four?
5: Um, I don't know how we need to ask. <laughs> If you bear with me, <laughs> okay. I'm gonna ask him live.
4: Put them on the spot. Right.
5: I'm
1: gonna
4: minutes.
5: put you on the spot for each leaf, to tweet, Dan. Out of the four matches for um, Omega and Okada, what's your favourite?
1: Right, two out of three
4: falls, match
5: Two one. out of three falls. Yes, yeah, so you agree with me?
1: We're <laughs> <still pals. laughs>
5: I'll tell him that when I go back through. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's my it's my second favourite. I went for match two, but. I think we can agree with what we've actually talked about over the last hour and a half. They're all great matches, and it's a fantastic series. It's probably one of the best uh, wrestling series of matches in all, of all time. Mm. Um, I'd say it's up to everybody mind. My favourite's Austin Rock, but, you know, uh, that's just based on where I watched, where I started watching more than anything. But, obviously, we're all in a time of isolation, so it's a good time for you to go back and watch all of these matches. You know what else is a good time to go do as well? Listen to the Eat Sleep Surprise Retreat catalog you can find us on any of your good podcasting sites if you've enjoyed this particular show just search for Eat, sleep suplex retweet you can also find the suplex retweet extra feet where we have two shows from the east meets west guys we should have had more but that stupid virus got in the way That's all. i'm not even going to say its name now it's going to be like the voldemort of this podcast now i've started saying i've started saying Meltzer. so it's just it's been replaced
5: <laughs> We've got so many Voldemort's on this podcast, even. Don't you deny that?
1: I get really mad about coronavirus when I mention the BS, man. <laughs> you know, that's I'm that's when you're not know getting really annoyed. But, oh yeah. But this has been our show talking about that series between Okada and Omega. Like, like I said, you can access it on New Japan Pro Wrestling World if you want to actually watch the full matches again. For us here at Eastleigh Suplexy, tweet next week. We'll be doing our show on mental health at wrestling. Yes. We're going to be doing it now, round about this time. So please listen to us next week. We've still got shows going on on the Supply's Retweet Extra feed as well. Sarah, Kwaku, you guys have got your King of the Ring show coming up soon. Kings yes.
5: Of the Ring. Kings of the Ring, because we had our our ever-so-popular Queens uh, Queen of the Ring fantasy book tournament. Um, so this time we decided to do tag teams of any era or... Basically, genres. So we've we've even got um, two two, two um, competitors possibly facing off. I'm I'm going to complete the draw very very soon. So you need to just look out for the video for that.
3: I have picked a star-studded <laughs> team of Team Quacker who are going to represent a one man who is going to pull double duty and I don't care what kind of incarnation he's in, he's going to win <laughs> the whole damn tournament. Mark Coffee, we are Team Coffee. You can bring it home, son.
1: So, so that is coming soon and also we've got to say, so much stuff still happening on the suplex v 3 Extra Feed, including Saturday Draft Live, where Season 5 has just begun. So please stay tuned to that to see my victory, not Grant's. And not
5: Scott. Well, no, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not asking if Stephen wins.
2: Yep. You that, that that introduction. The way we should introduce it is, you should in- stay tuned this Saturday to see who my new co-host is going to be. Who's going to help me continue the glorious legacy of the greatest show on the Extra that myself and David Campbell started.
3: Scott, can I just say, you said you were going to make it better. It just feels mm-hmm. like you transferred the foot from the left nut to the right nut, so yeah. when are you going to make it better? He's a very fortunate to end up in isolation. So,
5: Nobody so can that, replace David Campbell.
3: So, that is,
1: so that's coming up soon, but until then I'd like to thank my panel, I'd like to thank
5: Sarah. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. i
1: like to thank Grant.
4: Thank you very much, and you're
3: getting beat in the draft.
1: Uh, we will see uh, To Scott, thank you. Good night and goodbye. And to Quacko, thank you.
3: Good morning and hello.
1: <laughs> I've been Stephen Wilson and we'll see you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, Eat, Sleep, Suplex Retweet
0: now proudly presents Suplex Retweet Extra!
1: Get bonus content on WWE, AEW, NXT, WCW, Scottish, and World
0: Independent Promotions. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple, and Android podcasting sites, as well as YouTube. Head over to suplexretweet.com now!